You're listening to the Finding Unique Value Podcast with Jay Sparks. Hello, this is Jay Sparks, your host of Finding Unique Value, where I interview business leaders that have found unique value in their business or industry that others have not yet seen or explored. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Max Osborne, owner of Osborne Capital Management, a registered investment advisory firm with over $100 million in assets, focused on managing the wealth of a select group of families. Now, Max's firm has a unique approach and structure in this cookie cutter world of financial services. And I'm looking forward to learning from him how he's able to stand out and provide value in this competitive market. So, Max, welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. Great to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Great. Well, could you take a minute because I didn't go into any detail at all, really, in your background. I know you have some uh, done some interesting things and created a very unique. Uh, firm, and I'd love to hear yeah. just kind of your your uh, your take on 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 the context that's that's brought you to the the point that you are now. Yep. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'll jump off with that. The um, so Osborn Capital Management, we are an RIA, like you said, we manage money for families. Um, so families really are the focus and the center point of the business. It all, you know, starts and ends there. Um, when you're looking at any of the investment decisions our investment decisions, how we work with families, uh, we really have to focus in on that. So that, um, that means that if you look at the way that money management has traditionally been done, um, it's all about returns. It's all about knowing the market and being the smartest person. It's still, that's still very important, still very much a function. We just have had to evolve over the last 20 years into an industry that's more focused on the customer service. And uh, now what we end up with is um, getting to know the families that we work with very well uh, and then tailoring all the investments towards their goals. And, and also that, that has to do with uncovering things that they might not be saying or might not be comfortable talking about at the beginning, um, things that might be fearful or, or, or hopeful or might get in the way of their decisions. So um, it really starts and ends with the family and that's really been why we've been able to grow plus 100 million. We're at about 140 million now. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that, that's incredible. And I don't know if I've, uh, if I know of another firm, and there's probably, I don't know, round number, probably 5,000 registered investment advisories, advisory firms in the, uh, in the, in the country now. Um, typically, if, if a firm is focused on a family, it's focused on, you know, one or two or three in a you know, family office type situation, which is a very different, uh, different structure. So, how would you describe the difference between uh, the way you focus on the family versus just focusing on maybe one member of the family is your client, which is, I guess, in a typical firm, that's a, that's a structure, and they know of the other members, but it sounds like you're, whether they're a direct investor, uh, for lack of a better word, you're, sure. you're focusing on them too. Am I, am I getting that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm inspired by the family office industry, but there is no really... Um, you know, standard family office. So really when people talk about family office, they talk about people with an incredible amount of wealth and really just one client and um, then, you know, investment professionals that surround and support that client um, or that family. Now, the thing that I like about them and that I'm inspired about is, is really what I call being nimble. Um, so from my perspective, where are the people in my industry who sit at the RIA level or who are managing assets for lots of different families. 
what can they learn from the family offices? And it, it's really about flexibility. It's, um, you know, this is a new idea that a client brings, or this is a new opportunity that we haven't seen before. Um, let's see some examples. I mean, cryptocurrency, not something that we do actively, but we have conversations about it. Um, it's not something that would fit into the purview of any of the Merrill Lynch's Morgan Stanley's or whatnot. Even if we don't end up investing in it, we can still evaluate it. We can still research it. And that's that's what I call being nimble. Now, on the more practical side, there are startups uh, that our families will invest in. And sometimes those the families that we work with end up being really great um, deal source, you know, leads mm -hmm. for us. Um, and, and we've ended up investing in some private companies um, because we've met either met them through our network, met them through the families that we work with. And that's what I call being nimble. It's mm -hmm. just not something that you would ever be allowed to do in any of the big firms. And that's a limiting factor for them. Sure, sure. So that's the other thing that, that, that separates you, because it doesn't sound like you exclusively use um, package products like mutual funds, ETFs, and strict um, you know, asset allocation, where you have a couple asset allocation models and you put all of your clients into, you know, yeah. four different models. So how, how is, uh, how do you view kind of the, uh, the, the portfolio process? It sounds yeah. like uh, you have a very customized approach. It's definitely customized. I think the operative word that you said there is uh, strictly, because we, we don't really strictly do anything um, mm -hmm. because we can make the decisions because we're, you know, the, the owners, the operators, um, we can have an open ear. So, you know, the models, they don't last very long. If you set a model, you got maybe, maybe like three or five years out of it before the, um, before the underlying economics really start to change. Um, you know, fixed income being the huge question mark right now. Um, it was only about 18 months ago that you couldn't even get, you know, um, 50 basis points on a treasury. And now, you know, we were fluctuating around 2.5% at the beginning of the year, now it's down to like, you know, uh, high, high single or uh, 1.8, 1.9. Yeah. Um, that's just, that changes your model. You have to, you have to be able to update these things on the fly, which means you have to take a custom approach. Sure, sure. So it doesn't sound like you would use, you know, um, algorithms or that, that type of investing either for the same reason. So uh, I love, um, I love talking about the algorithms in the industry yeah. too, because um, the quant investors, the people who use algorithms to their mm -hmm. full potential, um, we're just not like that. We're, we're not high frequency trading and, and we can't get yeah. that far. So then at the other level, like the, I would say the lower level of the market um, where you're using algorithms that asset allocation they're yeah. at the beginning, they're, you know, they're designed by people and those people set those rules in. And so you really have to understand they're, they're not doing some magic behind the scenes with some artificial intelligence giving you some answer that has never been discovered before. They're really expressing the views of the people who program them. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and then um, because they're usually, you know, backwards looking, right, they're using data in the past, it's, at some point that those assumptions change, right? And it's always pretty dramatic and, and you don't know about it ahead of time. Um, so yep. if you're using the same information from the 70s, obviously you're not making good decisions right now because the, the, uh, the, um, a lot of the rules and and uh, boundaries have changed, um, but let me ask you this: yeah. This is something that that I noticed just uh, in, in in looking at your your website. And we spoke about it a little bit be, before we uh, we started here, but I think one of the unusual things about your firm 
is that um, your father is involved, but you, the son, are um, uh, are the head of the firm, and I think that says you know a lot about your father and uh, and a lot about you because um, typically um, that doesn't happen, right? The uh, the father will will run the business until he decides to to retire, uh, you know, the day before he retires, and then the son has to kind of scramble. Uh, to catch up, and there's lots of reasons for that, um, and, and obviously that's not the case here. You're obviously very yeah. capable and took took right over and have been uh, growing the, the business, and it sounds like your father's still involved uh, heavily too, yep. which is which is really unique. So how did how did that come about, and 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 um, um, what was the you know kind of was that something was that the plan all along, or did it just happen because of a you know sequence of events over over a period of time? Yeah, this it's a great question. This is a question that I um, end up talking with people a lot, whether they ask it directly or they're sort of curious. Mm-hmm. Um, I let's see, Osborne Capital. So uh, John, my father, had a 20-year career at Morgan Stanley, and he opened the Boston office for the high net worth Morgan Stanley Group in 2000. Um, mm-hmm. And then once he got through enough iterations of um, politics in the C-suite mm-hmm. level or in the executive level. He was just, he wanted to get back down to the ground floor and work directly with, with clients again. So mm-hmm. he founded the firm in 2005 when I was just just about graduating high school. I was a junior in high school, about to be a senior. And so over the next, you know, four or five years, senior year of high school and then through college, I had, I was able to take what I was learning in school and bounce it off of the family business or bounce it off of what he was doing. Um, so in my, I got a math degree and a finance degree and a lot of the math, you know, was getting into portfolio math, the derivative math, you know, all the investment, um, activities that you would do. And I just, I had a nice applied practical application, but I was pretty, uh, I didn't want to be so predictable and go directly to working for him. So I went to work for Bloomberg in New York and I had a great time there for two and a half years, um, I worked closely with the Goldman relationship and got to learn the, the entire industry top to bottom in a, in a way that I wouldn't have if I just worked for them. Right. And they provide me with a lot of education and training. And then, um, you know, I, the first couple of years of the career, you get such a great trajectory. You get, you can skip ahead so many levels and get promotions every, you know, eight or nine months if you're active. And then you sort of hit the middle pool. Uh, and that's what happened to me at Bloomberg. And so I was starting to look for other opportunities. And most of them were on the startup side or in, on the smaller side. I had about four of them lined up. And when I looked at, uh, I took some time off while I was evaluating this. Mm-hmm. And the um, the clear one was basically that if you work in the family business, you don't have to fight over getting options and equity and you have control. And that seemed the most attractive to me because Uh there were other companies that were saying, well, you get four year vesting, you know, 5% of the company in options or something. And, uh, you know, it it just seemed like if I had an offer on the table that was a hundred percent of the equity at some point in the future, possible, if I could run the business, um, then I took that. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. So, so what was it that uh, that you had to do to uh, to convince your father that you could uh, that you could do this, right? Because that that that's that's one reason why 
this particular sequence doesn't happen, right? The, the father doesn't think yeah. the son is ready. Clearly, that's not the case here. And it was, a, you yeah. know, based on where you are now, it was a good decision. So, so what, yeah. what, what, was, what was that journey like for you to become yeah. not only, um, you know, in, in the industry, but also be in, in a position of leadership? Because not everybody makes that transition smoothly or, or at all, right? Yeah, well, um, I had been doing projects for him throughout college and while I was working at Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. And I already knew a good amount about the business. The, the real question was really, uh, there are three components to the RIA business. It's um, operating a firm. So it's just management and operations, just like you would any other company. Mm-hmm. Um, raising capital for, you know, client relationships. Um, and then investment acumen. And, you know, I, I feel that the the, the latter two, the... Um, raising capital, client relations, and the investment acumen, they're, they're really an apprenticeship style um, industry, right? They're, they're the mm-hmm. kind of thing that you need to learn by doing and by watching other people. And I just had, I was very fortunate to be in a position where I could do a real traditional apprenticeship, apprenticeship style business. And I didn't really start pressing investment buttons until two or three years into the whole thing. I mean, I would do analysis, but it's very different when it becomes live. And, uh, oh, yeah. and you know, from there, um, you know, I think one of my values in this is just to forge ahead, forge ahead with courage, right? So uh, mm-hmm. you have to take steps. You can't just read about golf and tennis and then decide you're going to play it. You actually have to step on the court sure. or on the field sure. and uh, or on the greens. And then, so, that, you know, I just, six years in, um, it just worked. I mean, I'm I'm lucky that it did and it and it worked out. No, oh, that's great. That's great. So now that you're you know six years in, you're you're a professional investor managing you know tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, what what mistakes do you see uh, individual investors making that that um, you're much less likely to make? Not that you're perfect, of course, but you know certainly with um, uh, you being able to take a step back and having all the all the training. Um, both uh, personal training and through, you know, uh, other people, you know, um, you're obviously in a, you know, in a, a much different, uh, much different place and you have a much different viewpoint, but what, what advice do you, would you, would you give to you know, an investor that may be listening and, and wondering what, uh, what they should be thinking or how they should be thinking about risk or, or returns? So I would say that um, patience is, is really the hardest one. You can really feel the time creep on and you can really feel the discomfort building um, when you've had a bad market or a bad run or a bad couple months and, and just having the confidence to stick it out and silence the critics, either inside your head or, um, the ones that are outside, if I can go down that route, so I would say patience first, but then there's a whole, I think, art to silencing the critics. Um, Ray Dalio talks about it. He's like, does he basically asked, does this person have credibility? And if the critic is someone who doesn't have credibility, they're really just trying to bring you down or, or just, um, express their own discomfort. Uh, you have to recognize that. And, and so I would say, you know, when the market goes down, uh, headline wise, right. We get these, yeah. these Bloomberg alerts on our phone that we get the market down 500 points. It really means nothing, but they love to jump on it and jump on the drama. So, so I watch, you know, something like the REIT market last year, mm-hmm. um, just getting pummeled down like 20%. Um, you know, and a lot of fear in that area and, and just the markets are not reacting the way that we would expect them to, or hope, you know, hope for them to do. We, we have to be prepared 
for it to come back at any point. And it really took its time. And this year, it's one of the best performing markets year to date. So the REIT market's up, you know, 27% this year. It was just in the red all year last year, and it was really kind of painful to sit through it. And some sure. people who, who on the client side who understand the method, understand the patients, they were comfortable. Some people were starting to get a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're getting rewarded now. Yeah. Yep. And we, we saw that, uh, you know, when I was at Fidelity Investments, you know, people were always adding money when the funds were up and they were taking money out when the funds were down, right? Because they didn't have, um, you know, Max to talk to. Um, and right. they're doing it themselves. And, and as you know, you know, the average returns are, let's say, you know, 8% of the fund in the, in the fund world, but the investors are making a point or two less because of that same, the same fact, you know, they're, they're uh, yeah. making emotional decisions. And we have a whole um, industry, both the media and the investment industry, that's pushing them to do those things, right? They're, they just yeah. want them to do something or keep reading, and so you have to have that emotional message out there. So, um, yeah. so it, it sounds like yeah. when you're, you know, because you know these families so well, are, are you able to take that into account too? Because maybe you know one of them uh, has an account, but uh, you know the other ones are probably nervous too, even if they don't have large accounts with you. Do you? Do you have a yeah. process to include them? Because that, that would be unusual. I, I haven't, uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, that. no, that's a that's a great question. That was, that's exactly what I was thinking is the next thing to say was um, there's no amount of talking or coaching or, or, or discussions that are that can help get someone over that discomfort. They have to find it on their own. So mm-hmm. we really have to read uh, whether or not the person is going to be comfortable in that area. Mm-hmm. But it, it's funny because it all comes from the same place. It comes from this you know, general discomfort of there's, in, in some terms, it's my life is too expensive to afford, you know, big dips in my net worth, right? Um, yep. I don't have enough capital to cover that. I need to take my risk level down. And there's mm-hmm. so many different ways to say that or express it. No one ever tells you outright. But if they're saying, you know, hey, this actually doesn't feel so good. This is uncomfortable. Maybe you are over capitalized or over invested. And maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing to take some cash off the table, um, not necessarily as an investment decision, but as a personal decision. And that usually has a very positive psychological effect. I mean, when people feel a, a, a large amount of abundance, and that's a personal thing, then they can afford to take a lot more risk, and they end up generally getting better results. No, that's interesting, because uh, that's um, that's another issue with the current uh the current economic cycle we're in, right? It's probably the worst time that we'll ever see for anyone to be uh, conservatively invested, right? It, it, you know, yeah. with cash yielding so uh, so little, um, and I don't see that necessarily changing uh, right away. You need to you need to either uh, be ready for a downturn and you have to cut your expenses if you're on some sort of fixed you know, uh, uh, income, uh, or fixed amount of money. Yeah. You're not, you're not in a place where you're still accumulating wealth. Um, or you need to be comfortable taking a little more risk. Right. And I, yeah. I don't think, um, most people that are sitting in your chair are, are having that conversation like you are. So you're, you yeah. know, by having it now, when the, when the bullets aren't flying, it's a much easier conversation later on when it actually happens because yeah. you already have something in place that, that, that uh, helps them feel, feel comfortable. So that's, uh, that's smart. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's funny. People discount the amount of, um, you know, the importance of just how much they spend mm-hmm. and how much that affects the investing. You know, if, if, if it's nice to be an investor in Boston because people are not flashy here and status mm-hmm. is not as coveted of a, you know, a trait, I guess. Um, yeah. 
so you have people riding bikes, you know, like CEOs in, in, in Cambridge riding bikes to work and, <laughs> yep. and spending like, you know, spending almost nothing. Right. And they can afford to take an incredible amount of risk. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's different. So switching topics slightly, I, I know, you know, one of the things that um, isn't thought about uh, or at least not talked about a lot in this industry is that, um, and it, it kind of, uh, piggybacks on your your, uh, your point there on, on expenses is that expenses compound just like returns compound, right? You make an extra right. one, two, three percent a year over many years. That's going to be a, a change dramatically what you have in the account. But if you're being charged an extra percent or two, that can be uh, incredibly expensive and really cut into your returns. To the point that you know more than half of your future returns are actually going to the person you're paying the money. Right. And I don't think a lot of people really think about that. And it sounds like you also have a, a very common sense way of, of looking at how you charge for your services. What's your philosophy on, on that? And how does that how does that look? Yeah. Well, um, first, it's it's really dictated by the market. I'm not going to be able to influence the price all that much from where the market dictates it. So and the market really is what the clients want to pay and what they feel they um, deserve or, or what they feel they can get. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's, they talk about fee compression in the industry. I really think that the better term is margin compression. Um, really you have to deliver more to the clients for mm -hmm. either the same amount that you were getting paid five years ago, you know, or if you're not going to deliver more, you, you have to cut your fee and it, it all comes down to the perception. I mean, if, if people are extremely busy, they can't um, wrap their heads around all of the moving parts. You know, if you're talking to, about a family with considerable net worth and a lot of moving parts, a full-time job and three kids or four kids and a home to manage, you know, there, there's an operations component to this and there's an advisory component to this. And there is some kind of fee that should go along with that. The other thing is we have uh, fees for talent in Boston. I mean, Boston is a perfect famous example of you know where where the fees go in terms of talent because harvard just keeps gutting itself in terms of uh how they compensate their investment professionals you know with their 30 billion dollar or 40 billion dollar you know endowment that's attached to attached to it people get very uncomfortable about paying high fees but it's really just dictated by the market sure sure so um again switching uh switching topics uh, just a little bit because you you have grown um this firm over the last couple of years uh, quite substantially and yep. um m many firms uh, similar size firms have not grown so obviously you're doing something right and you have um uh, probably some things in place so i don't know if you want to speak about your firm or just business in general like why have you sure. been successful when uh, you know everybody knows kind of the the statistics you know most firms you know aren't aren't around after a year and then you know uh, yeah. only portion around after five years and of the ones that are still there in five years, a whole bunch of them are, are gone in, in 10. And it looks like that's not the trajectory that, you know, that uh, your firm is on. So you must have some, some things in place to, uh, to make sure that that is, is much less likely. So how do you, how do you think about that? <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, let's see. I, I'm, I'm naturally open and curious uh, in learning about, you know, tactics from other fields or, or how businesses that are successful mm -hmm. get run. So I, I read a lot and I listen to the various podcasts that talk about this stuff. And really, you know, tenacity is a, is a big one. We just got to mm -hmm. stick through uh, the uncomfortable periods and you have to keep your personal, 
you know, your personal life out of it. There's, that's a huge part of, that's a huge problem in owning a business and operating a business, let alone like one that shares my same name. I, it, it was like, it took me a long time to figure out that I was not the business and the business was not me. And then it allowed me to be a lot more dispassionate in the way that I run it or in how the numbers shake up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just doesn't, it, it's not a negative feeling when something goes bad, you know, it's just business, right? Just, and, and I think that's how clients and other people want it to be. You know, they, they're working with me. I happen to be the person. And then there's a business component. So right. I think people need to separate themselves from the business, um, not have, not have the ego and also know what you're solving for. So, you know, do you want to be well-known? Do you want fame or do you want business returns? You know, do you want income growth, you know, money to run your own life? And I did figure out, you know, that I don't want to necessarily have any fame in any of this. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't really want to be known because it's a whole different side of this. I think it's a really good career move. I'm just not that good at it and I don't really enjoy it. So, you know, if you are really good at Twitter and really good at marketing yourself and connecting with everyone else on social media and being kind of like the reality TV star, that's Mm -hmm. like a whole career outside of whatever you're doing for business. Really what I'm doing is I'm, I'm running just a traditional business, just like anyone. I think it's, I think business really should be some of the more boring concepts that we talk about, just mm-hmm. profitability, costs, uh, labor, you know, technology. The technology is an enormous part of, you mentioned why firms have not been doing well or, or will mm-hmm. close. Expectations on the client side went way up on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for what technology there were people that they were working with were using and, you know, it was there and (laughs) people didn't want to take it sometimes. And I would meet people and they're saying like, you know, it seems like these people are doing the trades via paper ticket, uh, which was happening five years ago. Um, And so, you know, we invested heavily in technology. The cool thing about it though, is that technology experiences a lot of, you know, kind of decay quickly. So whatever you're paying, in the first year, unless they are coming out with new features right away, you should be able to lower your bill almost immediately. Um, mm-hmm. And we've been able to do that. Just keep keep our costs low, be very efficient, use good technology. It's, it's really a management question. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, um, you know, looking, looking forward, um, you know, what are your, uh, what, what are your plans for your, for your firm? Are you looking to, um, find more, uh, more families to serve, or are you looking to do other, other things in addition to the, uh, uh, the investment advisory uh, business or yeah. what, uh, what are you looking to do? Um, well, let's see, I'm open to a lot of things. Uh, I'm yeah. not sure exactly. This, this is really more in the fantasy stage right now than the, yeah. than the reality, just because I think, uh, you know, unless I firmly take a step in any one of these directions, um, it really all is just like the fantasy talk, but I, I will share that I, I do enjoy the investing process and I would like to explore how Osman Capital can provide more unique investment opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. And that comes with size. At $140 million, you can do quite a bit, but at half a billion, um, you can really open up the creativity. You can start doing some really interesting direct deals, some real mm-hmm. estate deals, some private equity deals, some startup deals you just have more capital to work with. You can also afford, um, you know, more talent or support that can help you, um, you know, do your due diligence, do your sourcing, run, mm-hmm. run the firm. So sure. 
Um, you know, I, I have a great thing going on right now, so I don't need to push it into a territory where it gets, you know, risky or uncomfortable for me. But the next thing I would like to do is just, just continue doing what Osborne Capital does just at a more complex, higher level. And mm -hmm. it's just, I'm okay with it taking time, right? It, it'll take one year, or it'll take five years, somewhere in between okay. there. Yep. Yep, like you said, you're you're following out your own advice about patience, right? You just gotta, you know, focus on the process, and you'll you'll eventually get there. Yeah, I think that you know, many people are, are are always focused on on the results, and that's why um, I think right now uh, a lot of people are really really unhappy in this country, right? Because they see these other things that they want, and they're yeah. not uh, doing the things they need to do to get there, right? So they're yeah. constantly wanting uh, this stuff, but they're not getting closer to actually uh, being there. And it sounds like you're you're taking all the right steps. It's just uh, a question of uh, which door you want to you want to open? Yeah, um, well, you nailed it with uh, process over results. That's really mm -hmm. what it's all about. Um, mm -hmm. You can't control, no matter how smart or, or confident or anything that you think you are, you can't control the results. And so, I actually have a little reminder on my desk. I have this little, uh, like, two little Lego pieces that my wife gave me. I just got married two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. She gave those to me because she was like, just a reminder to focus on the process. We talk about it all the time. And not ah. the results, and and that's that's really because it's the only thing you can input into the system. If you think about it as a system, you yep. put you design a process, you put your input in, and then whatever mm -hmm. spits out is a result, and it's yep. just data. And if it's yep. good data, then your machine is working. If it's bad data, that means you have to go back to the process. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. People don't like you. You're failing. You're a loser. And it's really just it's just an input, and it's a reminder to go back and tweak something. No, that's uh, that's smart. Well, that's uh, that that reminds me too because um, I noticed that um, you list your your staff on your website and they're in different places, right? Which is also yeah. uh, I think unusual because typically the old model is to bring everybody in one place and you you know buy a building or take over a floor if you're renting the space yeah. and you just kind of you know get yeah. get bigger and bigger and you know there's certainly advantages to that but there's also lots of limitations too unless you have a really enormous organization it doesn't necessarily you don't really need to be in one place so what, what were your thought process around growing your business uh, not really virtually but almost right everyone's not in one geographical location all the time it looks like well let's see there's i think we wrote about this two or three months ago it's just mm -hmm. sort of the future of work and what effect that might have on the economy as a whole mm -hmm. and and that was we wrote that article partly because it was being written about at that time, but it it's also good for our business and for other businesses to take advantage of some of the things that have come out in terms of uh, looking at how people function best in in their work life. And they mm -hmm. talk about you know if you only work Monday through Thursday, you actually have a higher output than the Monday through Friday. You're talking about it like a salary employed yeah. salaried employee, and so. You know, there's a testing phase on this. So we test and we learn and we develop our own takeaways to make sure mm -hmm. that, you know, our hypothesis is correct or not. And what it's turned out is we've been able to find now it takes a lot of work and it's not something you could launch in like six months or, or yeah. three months or whatever. Yeah. But a lot of uh, conversations, we knew, we've been able to find people who are in a position where they want to, where they have experience. Mm -hmm. And they can contribute meaningfully to our business, but they can do it in small chunks or small periods of time. Yeah. And they can sort of do it on demand from wherever. Yeah. I mean, we have um, our editor for, you know, for the articles 
we write the articles ourselves, but he edits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, he goes back and forth between Texas and New York and wow. know, he's on the road and he has his laptop. He theoretically, any of these, any of these jobs can be done from anywhere. We just, I think, what are the, uh, the key things you need to find someone who is, who's the right fit, who's talented and who works and you figure out pretty quickly. I mean, yep. it doesn't, doesn't take more than like two weeks of working with someone to realize, you know, they're not a good fit. Now these are all all like contract independent contractors, or do you have a different a different type of structure? They're all play? independent. Well, you know what? It's it's good. Uh, it's a good question because it's kind of like I always like this. The one of the first interns that worked for me, he said, ambitious young guy who's mm-hmm. here working in Boston now for another firm. Mm-hmm. He says, um, you know, I don't want to be your intern. I want you to be my first client which I thought was really funny. And yeah. it's kind of similar to how this works now where, you know, in some of these cases, I'm these, I'm these people's clients. Like the editor yeah. is, I think we're more his client than he is our editor. Got it. And okay. I don't really care which way it goes. Yeah. I think it ends up being like a contractor relationship or yeah. they end up running their own, you know, support business. Sure. Sure. No, that's, uh, that's great. That's smart. And that again, requires some patience. So that's really uh uh, seems to be a recurring theme, and uh, you know you need to have the process in place so it can be repeatable. Because that's the other thing too is you know you have uh, you know let's say ten years experience, not one year repeated ten times, right? You see that a lot in cor- corporate yeah. America. People come in, they learn their yeah. job, and then they just stop growing. So you know right. a couple of years later, they're asked to do something else, or they're worse, they're laid off. They don't really have any other skills or any other options, and plus they don't continually do a better job. So you've you found a way to keep your firm innovating, which is in this industry, isn't that easy to do because <laughs> a lot of these jobs right. aren't all that exciting. But if, but if they know that um, uh, they can do it uh, under their own terms, I mean, who wants to commute two hours each way, each day, right? Based on where some of these people yeah. live, if they wanted to be next to you. That's what they'd have to do. Right. That would, that yeah. would, uh, I can't imagine they'd be too much fun to, to have around the office every day, <laughs> right. After a certain amount of time. So, um, I, I think the flexibility is, I think Bill Gates wrote about this too. You know, it's going to be a real important piece for employers going forward. If they can't do what you've done, which is, you know, not easy. It took a lot of work for you to kind of nail down a process that works for you. Um, you yeah. know, just, just because you've done that hard work now, you're going to have an advantage over everybody several years from now. So that is, uh, again, you're, you're ahead of the curve on, uh, on that for sure. You know, some people may hear this. You may, may get some phone calls just on <laughs> what your process is so they can try to, uh, yeah. try to duplicate well, it, which is, uh, which is good. I, I'm happy to share that. I always think that this is more about execution than it is about ideas. So that's the other thing I've found is, you know, you can have all these ideas. You really have to get up there and execute on them. And I've been doing that, you know, day in and day out. So I know, and I know how hard it is. So anyone's, you know, welcome. <laughs> I'll talk no, about that- all this. I'll that's give away great. all my secret sauce. Yeah. 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 No, that's, uh, that's great. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Mark, Mark Cuban does the same thing. He said, yeah, you, you can, anyone can have my ideas. I know they're no secrets cause you, you're going to have to do them better than me. You have to work harder than me, you know, and that's not necessarily yeah. uh, an easy thing. So, and I think you put a lot of effort into this too, which is, which is great. Well, is, is there, um, any, uh, any parting words that you have or any, any either questions you think that, uh, people should be asking that, that they don't of, of people, um, kind of doing what you're doing, or is there any other thoughts you'd like to like to leave us with? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, I follow, I was, I was just going to say, uh, there are some of the people that I follow in the industry who I think are 
exceptional. And, uh, you know, Twitter is probably a great way to do that as a consumer, um, mm-hmm. you know, to read what they're doing on a regular basis. So people like Jeff Gunlock, you know, tweet some really interesting kind of thought-provoking quick quick things. I think Ray Dalio is doing a great job. Matt Levine, uh, the Bloomberg columnist, he writes the Money Stuff columnist, column. Yeah. He's like one of the best writers in in the industry. He just goes, you have to be interested in this stuff in the first place, whether yeah. you're an investor yourself or in or professional, because he just goes on and on and on in extreme detail. But it's really funny if you care about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Dan Resmussen here in Boston, he started a, a small cap fund, Verdad. Um, I just think he's a thoughtful, you know, person approaching this and in, in his industry, you know, he's, he's doing a fund, but um, he also tweets out his thought. And, and that's, I guess I like this because I also blog and write my own articles, not in conversational format on, t- on Twitter, but just posting it out there. And I think if you are, it's hard to do it but it's good to get your own statements out there. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to shout some of those ideas, some of those people out there as people to follow. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I think all of them are really uh, uh, giants too. So it's always good to, uh, for that reminder, because we have uh, so much noise out there. It's good to know um, what the uh, what the good ones are, particularly from someone like yourself who's very successful. So you're able to um, help be that filter for the uh, for the rest of us. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you for that. So um, if somebody is um, – there's an investor that really likes your, your family focus and the fact that you're, you're nimble and, and you're flexible, so it's, it's not an you know, incredibly rigid uh, approach, and, and they do you know, like what they've, what they've heard today, what's the, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or, or, or contact you? Sure. So all, all my contact information is right on my website. I would add that you know, for any of these people, everything – that gets discussed is very specific and tailored to them. So there's no real general advice out there. Um, and I would mm-hmm. be skeptical of anything that's just general advice. So they can get in contact with me through my email, through my phone, you know, which is also listed on there. And I think that would be the way to go. Okay, great, great. Well, Max, thank you again. This is really a fascinating conversation. I learned a lot. I, I really think that uh, you're, you're definitely on to a very unique process and, and anyone uh, that's uh, you're working with is is very very lucky to have uh, to have found you and thank you again for sharing some of the experts that you uh, you watch too i think that's also very uh, very valuable for the rest of us it's hard to discern who is actually good and who just uh, sounds good right at the uh, first time you yeah. look at them so and uh, yeah. thank you everyone for uh, for listening to uh, finding unique value we look forward to sharing our next guest with you soon and uh, bye for now The Finding Unique Value podcast is sponsored by Elliott Asset Management. We help successful entrepreneurs create wealth outside of their business. To discover the five ways successful entrepreneurs become intelligent investors and grow wealth beyond their business, visit ElliottM.com slash webinar.